All right, if you want to go ahead and grab a seat, take your Bibles out. You can open up to Acts chapter 24. <clears throat> really encourage you, if you're newer to Calvary, if you've missed the last few weeks, uh, doing a little adjusting there on the mic. Sorry, guys. I like it, though. That's a good sound, I think. Is the rapture happening right now? I don't know. Um, uh, but uh, I encourage you to get on our YouTube channel, get on our podcast, listen through the Book of Acts series. Uh, maybe just for the sake of time, pick up in chapter 20 and 21, and that'll really fill you in on where Paul is at right now, why he is going to be going on trial here. But we're really um, getting into some legal proceedings in, involving uh, the Apostle Paul, three different judges that he's going to be facing before he makes his way to Rome to stand before Nero. Uh, it's really an exciting thing, especially if you're like me and you enjoy some good courtroom dramas, you know, on NBC or something like that. Uh, Lindsay and I, for a long while, we were big Law & Order fans, you know, and uh, just couldn't miss an episode. Loved the legal drama. And uh, I remember there was a commercial on NBC about, um, you know, in interviewing the different cast and characters. And they said, hey, what do you call that sound at the beginning of every Law and Order episode? And if you've ever watched it, you know, it's kind of this boom, boom, you know. And uh, one cr cast member said, um, we call it the doink, doink, you know. And uh, and so there's going to be quite a few times as we're reading this that your mind might go to a dunk, dunk, you know, or a doink, doink, um, because there's a lot of action happening here. Uh, as there's a legal process and the process of the law as we have the transportation of the uh, prisoner after he's been arrested in a type of arrest that you guys, if it happened these days, uh, there would have been, you know, a, a million people on the sidewalks with their cameras out videoing this guy just getting just demolished by the crowd. Soldiers are coming in, grabbing him. Uh, the general is afraid he's going to be tore apart by the mob, all of that stuff. I mean, this is viral video stuff on YouTube that happened to Paul. And then you have uh, the plot to assassinate him that we saw last week. And then you have the transportation of the prisoner to the courtroom, you know, and, and in this case, it was with 472 soldiers and cavalrymen and 72 miles uh, over to Caesarea. And um, before he would spend about five days before he would actually see the judge. And so you have um, all of this to the, to the point that the legal stuff really gets your blood pumping. Now, uh, Paul is going to be accused of a few different things. Number one, uh, sedition against Rome in a way or two, but mostly the Jews are bringing trial against uh, specifically his faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul's really going to just be saying, man, the life of Jesus and the belief in the gospel you know, it, it has a level of submission to the local authorities and it's all rooted and based in the law of Moses and has its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I'm not trying to subvert anything here. John Stott said the gospel did not undermine the law, whether Jewish or Roman, but rather upheld it. Paul's contention while on trial was that in principle, the gospel both supports the rule of Caesar and fulfills the hope of Israel. And I like this final sentence. His defense before his judges was to present himself as a loyal citizen of Rome 
and a loyal son of Israel. And so he's going to go and give his defense and he's just, man, he's just going to do so well. Uh, the Jews are going to employ a trained professional, a talented orator named Tertullus to give the opening arguments against Paul. And he's going to be speaking to a man named Antonio Felix. We saw at the end of last week, at the end of chapter 23, a letter was sent by the Roman commander uh, telling the basically what happened. It's interesting. The Roman commander is going to make himself look like he just did such a stellar job protecting Paul. And then the Jews are going to make it look like they did such a stellar job trying to put Paul on a fair trial when n- neither one of them are really being all that honest. But the letter was written to Felix, who's the Roman governor who will be uh, the judge over this trial. Interesting. Felix was once a Roman slave. His brother Paulos became a personal friend of Caesar Nero. So as a favor to Paulos, Nero freed uh, Felix from his slavery and not only freed him, but um, put him in governorship over uh, Judea. And so it's kind of that regs to riches type of a story that we have with Felix. Now, the next three guys that Paul's going to speak, you know, they've got some interesting names that frankly, I get them mixed up all the time. You've got Felix, you've got Festus, you've got... Agrippa. And they just sound like cat names to me. And it, and I think they're, they're like street cats, you know, and that's kind of they're at. Can't trust them. Just when they're kind of purring and you start putting your hand out there, they strive at you, you know. And it's kind of like, oh, I think we're building up a good rapport with the judge, you know. And uh, and that's really how it's going to be. Um, it's going to seem that, oh, he wants to have conversation with me. He's enjoying our relationship and our conversations. He's probably going to let me out now. Nope, it's two and a half years and I'm still in jail is essentially what's happening with um, the different judges uh, at this point. So, uh, but Felix was known to be a ruthless man. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus said Felix was a master of cruelty and lust. He exercised the power of a king in the spirit of a slave, a ruthless man. He ruled with a mafia mentality, whatever it took, pay him off, knock him off. It doesn't matter. Uh, whatever would bring Felix his security. So that's who Paul's going to be standing before. You know, um, I haven't done much with the court system. Uh, I've gone and spoken on people's defense and trials before. And, and I remember just hearing people ask, you know, who's your judge? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't know who is my judge. I hope they're a good judge. I hope they're a fair judge. I hope their convictions are compatible with my, what's going on here. And, uh, and if Paul was asked to stay, who's your judge? Uh, he'd be told Felix and it'd be like, it's a little iffy on which direction this is going to go. So let's get into the story, huh? Now, after five days, this is Acts 24, one. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And so Paul has been basically in jail in Herod's praetorium. We saw that last chapter for five days, just waiting his trial. And we've got this certain guy, a certain gifted order, Tertullus, uh, known to look a bit like a turtle. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That's not true. Um, but they brought down really the big guns for the big day. If you uh, have gone to the Crook County Courthouse and you know you're, there's the arraignment and stuff, they nowadays have the television screen there and the names are there, you know, and what time they're standing before. Well, today, Paul's on the docket, right? He's up at the top. It's time for his um, meeting. 
The council brings charges. Uh, Tertullus opens up for the prosecution. And the first order of business, it's not much different now than it was then, was to curry favor with the judges. And uh, it's Stott that's going to end up saying, it's quite nauseating uh, how he goes about doing that. So verses kind of two through four here, we have what has been known to be called, uh, I'm going to butcher it, So, and I didn't wear my glasses today, so I'm kind of like, uh, the Captatia Benevolentia. Okay, it was just known to be the standard pr- procedure, and it really sounds like a captive audience. You know, you've got the captive audience, but you want to, with that captive audience, you want to bring benevolence out of them and some good favor. So you really gotta, you know, schmooze the guy as you're talking. Standard procedure here. He wanted to capture any benevolent disposition in the judge who was hearing the case. And here's what Stott says about it. Traditionally, it was complementary to the point of hypocrisy and often included a promise of brevity. And I promise I'll be quick with this. Pastors do it all the time too, but <laughs> okay. Um, but on uh, this occasion, it descended into almost nauseating flattery for Tertullus expressed gratitude for the peace Felix had secured and the reforms he had introduced. Whereas in reality, he had put down several insurrections with such barbarous brutality that he earned for himself the horror not the thanks of the Jewish population. Tertullus's opening speech is going to be, it's going to be pretty brief. Some believe that it was just uh, a snippet of it or a resume of it or a summary of it. Um, and in the midst of it though, he's just going to be buttering up the judge most of the time. Uh, Begg says Tertullus was long on flattery, short on honesty. And if you've heard Hamlet, when there's a defense given before a queen, he's just blobbity blobbing before her when she says, hey, uh, less art, more matter, please. You know, And that's the case here. There's a lot of art, not much matter uh, in all of this. He's kind of like a door-to-door salesman that the second you open it, you have your regrets. you know, And then they just start talking about, oh, your yard. Oh, your dog. Oh, is that your kid? Blue-blue-blue-blue-blue. Well, I've got some blue cheer cleansing agent right here that I'd like to sell you right now. And I'm going to demonstrate on your carpet. I know you don't want me to come in, but I'm coming in anyways. And then, and then they just go on and on and on. Uh, and they're just trying to sell you something. That's Tertullus here. Now in verses two and three, when he was called upon, Tertullus begins his accusation saying, seeing that through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. <gasps> We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Are you picking up what he's laying down? Are you stepping in what he's laying down is really what I should say. I think so, right? Uh, so this great orator begins with this accusation of Paul with the flattering of Felix, the governor. It's getting pretty thick. And, and he says that all these great things have happened through the rule of Felix. But what it's actually been like is that There's been no presiding over any times of peace. Actually, there's been constant civil unrest. The Romans have frequently been called on to have to squash the uprisings against Felix. There's been a heavy yoke upon the necks of the people. 
not prosperity, but rather huge taxing. There's no record in history of any beneficial reforms having been given to the Jewish people through Felix. He's actually recalled to Rome later on because within his jurisdiction, it was just in a constant state of unrest. And so far, Tertullian is only blowing smoke so that the prosecution can gain a foothold. They didn't, by the way, also accept his wonderful leadership in all ways, in all places. The Jews were constantly revolting. They were displeased and they hated his leadership. And so, uh, verse 4. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from me. And so here's the promise for brevity for a quick argument. It's a conventional uh, part of the legal speech, as was the appeal to the judge for clemency. And so here's the accusations uh, in verse five. We've found this man to be a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So here's just the beginning of the accusations. Number one, Paul is a plague. Or maybe your Bible says he's a pestilence. Marshall says Paul was a pestilent fellow to the Jews. Or what's the root word of pestilence? Pest. Paul was a pest. A perfect pest to use some alliteration there for you. Sorry, you guys sitting in the front row, I'm going to spit on you just a few times with all the alliteration I've written down today. Uh, he was a dangerous nuisance. And in his pestilence, he was contagious and infectious. But what do we know about Christianity and the spread of the gospel? It's exactly what we want to be, right? He's opening up his mouth about the gospel. He's on the move. He's traveling. He's bringing the hope of Israel to the whole world in Jesus Christ. And it's what the book of Acts has said is turning this world upside down and greatly troubling the whole city. So it's contagious. It's infectious. You've heard of people, oh, their smile is contagious or their joy is infectious. And I hope that's said of you and your demeanor in your workplace and your spheres of influence that you are also a pest and really, that's how the world is going to see you. You start opening up your mouth about the Lord and there's going to be people that don't want to hear about their sin against God. They want, they don't want to hear that they're not perfect. They don't want to hear that someone loves them and had to come and redeem them from their troubles. I can redeem myself and I didn't even get into any troubles. And, and you've got to confront their arrogant self-righteousness. And it's a confrontation that frankly, they're going to call you a, a pest, a problem, a nuisance. And that's what they called uh, Paul here, uh, dangerous nuisance. And it reminded me of in the book, heavenly man, it's written about brother Yun, who was saved in communist China and then just had such a heart to spread the gospel that he was imprisoned many times beaten and just injured for the testimony of Christ. But he writes in the book, the heavenly man, he says, we passed through many bus stations displaying posters with my name and picture announcing that I was a dangerous criminal a counter-revolutionary. The posters accused me of being the leaders of an anti-government organization that stirred people up against state religious policies. At one town, we had to change our bus. I was wearing sunglasses to hide my eyes. Many people at the station had seen my picture and we overheard them discussing it. One man said, the person who helps catch this fugitive will receive a great reward from the government. And so it's really a common thing for anyone who 
opens up their mouth um, and shares the gospel and preaches biblical Christianity. And yes, it's going to be happening in our nation where you start opening up your mouth and speaking of uh, the holiness of the Lord and his gift towards sinners. And, um, and you're going to be called a, a danger against the state. You're going to be called a danger against the civilization. Uh, and really that public prominent pest that Paul was, if you'll forgive the the peas. The second accusation against him was that he was a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Uh, again, this is actually a compliment because when we talk about throughout all the world, it talks about the stretch and the net and how far and wide it's going. And the language is being used of throughout the whole world. The whole world was being touched with the gospel and that is influence. That's good influence. Um, about the same time we were in our law and order phase, we also were big NASCAR fans. <laughs> and uh, Lindsay's family is, re- is really into NASCAR, and we watched it for quite a while. Now Russell's into it. You can tell, by the way, he wears his mullet. But um, but I remember you know Jeff Gordon being interviewed years ago, and they're just saying things about his driving, and they're just being nasty to him. And the, you know the reporter's like, what do you have to say about all the bad things that people are saying about you and your driving and your team and this and that? And he just says, I'm just glad people are talking about me. You know, even if they're talking bad stuff about me, it just means that I'm on their radar and they're thinking about me, you know, and when it comes to them talking about the gospel and they're talking about you're this public nuisance because you're opening up your mouth, they're talking about me. Uh, it's branding season right now and we're going out with our ranching ministry and we're working calves. And a couple years ago, as we were branding, I just thought, man, you know what? I'm going to bring my guitar. And when we're eating, I'm just going to play some songs. I'm going to learn a little bit of, you know, some secular country that's going to kind of draw them in. You know, and then I'm going to bring some Jesus songs. It's going to, you know, just speak the gospel over them. And uh, it happened years ago. And, you know, it's not like anything really happened from it. And then uh, a guy in our church who's a, a day worker cowboy, this last year I was riding with him. He goes, I want you to know, Rory, that your reach is out there. He says, I was working with this guy and he was talking about these Jesus guys, you know, that are going to these brandings and, you know, they're wearing Jesus's real shirts and Jesus answers prayer shirts and all this stuff. And they break out a guitar and they start singing songs about Jesus. And it's almost too much. And he just said, just so you know, you're doing a good job because people are thinking about Jesus. They're talking about Jesus. Even if it's, I don't know if I like this stuff, they're hearing about him. All right. So sometimes it rubs, it's, it's a little bit of a rub, right? Cause it's against our flesh. The next accusation is that he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes or the cult of the Nazarenes. Now, by this point in history, sect wasn't considered like a cultic expression describing cults. Um, It really just meant this group of those of the Nazarenes. This is the only place in the New Testament we see Christians called uh, Nazarenes. Um, But it, it spoke of where Jesus was from. Um, and, uh, and he was the, the ringleader of them. Apparently verse six, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. And so this fourth accusation against him profaning the temple, the desecration of the temple. Um, and you guys know the story that Paul wasn't there to profane the temple or to lead any sort of rebellion. He got there and everyone was like, Hey, you know, there's some Jewish Christians that here you've been telling people not to get circumcised and to not really, you know, appreciate the law anymore and Moses and all that and the temple. And so maybe what you could do is just a sign of goodwill is you could, you know, pay for some vows of these other guys that are going to go and sacrifice at the temple. And you could shave your head and do the Nazarite vow and go and spend some time with the temple mountain. Just show you're still a good Jew and 
you appreciate the history and what it all points to. And, and so Paul's like, yeah, I'll totally do that. So he pays these other guys vow. He goes up there. It's a couple days into the worship time. And then just all heck breaks, breaks loose as he's just trying to be just loving and accommodating to people that are struggling right now. And so there was no intention of desecrating the temple. We also know that they accused him of taking an Asian from Ephesus or an Ephesian from Asia up onto the temple mount and into the temple courts. Now, if you know anything, if you remember, that was a big no-no. There's actually signs that have been excavated in the last uh, 100 years and in the last 50 years. And these signs were found to be outside the temple wall where it would say, uh, anyone, any Gentile who goes in past this point will have themselves to blame for their ensuing death. So just a welcoming community. Hopefully here, when you come to Calvary Chapel, you come in, but not too far, you know, uh, no, just kidding. Come all the way in, right? Uh, everyone is welcome. Uh, so there was no, there's no profaning of the temple. He didn't take that guy into the courts. Uh, it was, it was a lie. It was false accusation against him. Now, this was a, a a dangerous accusation against him, though. The Romans, they would try to work with the surrounding religions, and they believed that the Jewish God was a God, one of many. And so they wanted to kind of help with that religious circle. And so if there was an accusation concerning the temple of this religion, they would be pretty harsh and severe for anyone that was trying to revolt against that. But it was false accusation uh, nonetheless. Uh, they also said that in the midst of it all, we wanted to judge him according to our law. And you don't see that in the account from Luke here. There, that wasn't what happened. They wanted to lynch him. They wanted to assassinate him. They didn't want to try him rightly. And the, um, it goes on to say, but the commander Lysias in verse seven came by with great violence, took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. So if you were here the last few weeks, is, is this what happened? You know, we just wanted a peaceful trial with our Jewish law. And then here comes the Roman commander and just ruins it all. No, the commander was trying to figure out what the accusation even was. And then when Paul brought up the resurrection, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were fighting so hard over Paul, they almost split him in half. And the commander Roman had to come and say, oh, let's get you out of here. Let's get you to safety. Uh, we're going to take you uh, to Caesarea. So it, it's been a whole lot of hot air, blowing a lot of smoke. And a whole lot of lies about what Paul might have even done wrong. That's not really the important part of the message. As we get into it, Paul's defense is going to have some sweet stuff that brings a lot of great application to us today. Uh, as we keep on reading the second half of verse 8. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things uh, were so. So Tertullius had, uh, Tertullus had flattered the judge brought his false charges. Now it's time for him to back away. Thinking his earbuds going to the courthouse today. He'd been listening to a little Kenny Rogers. You know, you got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him, know when to walk away and know when to run. And he's backing out right now. He says, okay, I'm done now. Paul now steps up before Felix in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, and as much as I know that you've been for many years, a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So this guy's the big top dog, this Felix, and he doesn't even say anything. He just nods, you know, and that's the sign for Paul to speak. Now, Paul also begins with the captatio benevolentia, but his is a lot more modest. It's a lot shorter and it's not so much smoke. 
Okay. Um, Paul's flattery essentially says, yes, you've been a judge for many years. (laughs) And Felix is like, and I'll speak for myself. Okay. Like that's, that's about it. Right. Yes. You've been a judge for many years and I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. You know, the court appointed attorneys won't be needing them. I've got my, uh, legal folder here in my legal pad. I'll speak for myself. And he works his way through the different charges in verse 11, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem uh, to worship. It's only been 12 days like that. That's hardly enough time to cause an insurrection or some sort of revolution. Uh, and they neither found me in the temple, verse 12, disputing with anyone or inciting a crowd it has the ring of Jesus. Remember when Jesus gave his defense and he just says, I was over here talking. You could have come and talked to me then. I was, a, I was never doing anything that was antagonistic towards the temple or towards the Roman government. Why didn't you come talk to me then? Uh, I wasn't in the synagogues inciting uh, a crowd or in the city. Verse 13, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. So as far as being a troublemaker, I was in Jerusalem for 12 days. My accusers didn't find me doing anything that was stirring up a commotion in the temple, the synagogues, anything like that. I wasn't doing these things. I'm innocent. Verse 14, but this I confess to you. (gasps) Right? Law and order, right? You've seen it happen, you know? They're going to confess. And you start hearing all the click, click, clicks of the, well, nowadays, I don't know if they do that anymore. Maybe they just click for the sake of clicking, but click, 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 and the flash bulbs going off. He's going to confess. And the court appointed drawer, you know, artist is got to get, oh, classy, huh? I got to get this on paper, you know, and, uh, he's going to confess. I murdered all those people. I buried them in my backyard. You know, yes, you know, he's, he's guilty. Ah, I must confess this to you. That according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all the things which were written in the law and the prophets. Ah, what a letdown. <laughs> you know, all he says, hey, I confess that I'm actually a really good Jew. I actually believe the law and the prophets. I believe in the God of our fathers. And I believe that the scriptures, the law, the prophets, they all speak to Jesus being the Messiah, the savior of the world, the hope of Israel, uh, you know, There's nothing scandalous in it. It's just counter whatever it is that you were believing it was supposed to be. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And so Paul's going to speak here and in the verse to come about the resurrection. And it's kind of good, good and timely. You know, sometimes I'm like, how do I? Is it Palm Sunday? Did I do a Palm Sunday service? And just there's times I just want to keep going through the word. And I'm thankful that today in Acts, we've got this great primer of our pump for what this week is, is just about, what the, the great celebration is on Sunday, right? The hope of the resurrection. And we remember when Paul stood before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he kind of dropped a time bomb or he dropped a little smoke grenade in front of them that that caused a distraction from their focus on him because he knew by mentioning the resurrection, the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection would, would be antagonistic towards him. But the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection would kind of stand up for him. And that caused the tumult that almost ripped him in half. Um, and so he mentions the resurrection again, that he has a hope in God, the Pharisaical Jews, uh, that camp, they accept this. This hope that there will be a resurrection of the dead 
both of the just and the unjust. And there's, this verse is just packed with good stuff. First of all, that there's hope. There's hope. I love our mission organization we've been a part of for so long because kind of like their catch word is hope. It's on the sweatshirts. It's on the t-shirts. Just that there's hope. You know, messages of hope in a time that even what we're living in right now, something we so need. And even as we go into Passion Week and Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the resurrection celebration, there is a hope. Paul had it even in his time of trial that there will be a resurrection. There'll be a resurrection. Passages about the resurrection usually include thoughts of renewal and future bliss But passages such as this also include with that the certain expectation of judgment. And something that Jesus spoke of, Jesus personified and lived out, and something that Paul would preach is that the resurrection of the saints will not just be a spiritual thing, but will be actual physical resurrection of our body. Yes, this is something that the world and Christianity even is very ignorant of. This is something that Paul says to the Thessalonians. I don't want you to be ignorant uh, concerning these things. That there will be a resurrection of physical bodies, both of the just, Paul says, and of the unjust. You know, the Greeks believed in a spiritual realm. You know, but when they heard Paul speak on Mars Hill about the resurrection from the dead... That's when they were like, I can't even. I mean, we've got all of our mythology and all the spiritual legends out there, but you're telling me that this body that's just so rickety and crickety, that God's going to do something with it and redeem it from its morbid, corruptible condition. And Paul says, yeah, I'm going to write about it to the Corinthians. This corruption must put on incorruption. And that's something that happens during the resurrection. Abraham knew that God would resurrect Isaac, even if he went through with him, with slaying him on Mount Moriah that day. Joseph knew that there was going to be a resurrection to, so take my bones with you so we can all resurrect together. Job, even in his time of trial, wrote of the resurrection. It was a famous Hillsong song back in the days. We sang it and wore it out back in 1998. Do you remember it? For I know that my redeemer lives. Remember? For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that with my flesh I shall see God. Job hoped in the resurrection. With One day my eyes will see God. Because there's going to be uh, that bodily resurrection. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul addresses some in Corinth who were saying that uh, there would be no resurrection from the dead. And he addresses that. He says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, then Christ is not risen. And this gets into theological implications, okay? If Christ is not risen, well, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is empty, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And as you hop down to verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead 
And he's become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. So he says, you just forget all of that hocus pocus lying stuff. He is risen from the dead and he's the first one of all the others who will also rise from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's the first one. And all of us who have faith in him will also rise from the dead. As we get ready for baptism on Sunday, so neat because a lot of people have been coming up. I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. And so I talk through baptism with them and I speak about baptism as this outward symbol of what's gone on in your heart and that you're uniting yourself with Jesus. And Romans 6 tells us that we're uniting ourselves with Jesus by faith in his death. And as he's buried, so we are buried in the waters of baptism And even Romans six says it, but the good news is he didn't stay buried dead. He rose from the dead to newness of life. And he also brings all of us up into that resurrection state as well. So that we have resurrection power now, right now, where you're at, where we're living. And then the future hope of resurrection power to come. Philippians 321 tells us that he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Anybody here feel like you've got a lowly body? Yeah, so I'm 41 now. I feel pretty good sometimes. And then there's times I don't know what's going on. You know, and I know it, some of you people that are older than me, you're like, you ain't seen nothing yet, boy. I know, I'm looking at you. Okay, <laughs> uh, I see it. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, you know, but... But it's so weird. You're like, my mind's, my mind's going slower. You know, my body's going slower. We're branding calves and I feel like I got hit by a linebacker the next day. I can't move. My hip's out of joint. I'm rolling on lacrosse balls on my butt now. Like, never had to do that before. I'm just like, get on there, you know, and push that knot out, you know. It's, and, but our lowly bodies will be transformed into glorious bodies. Anybody looking forward to that day? I can't wait. Yeah. Put your hand down. It was rhetorical. No, I'm joking. Yeah. We all, I'm teasing. Oh yeah. So good. Some of, look, did you see the young guys up front? They're like, I don't see what the big deal is. You will. Okay. So there will be a resurrection. It will be a bodily resurrection. And this is where I always say, go ahead, touch your face, your nose, your eyes, your ears, your shoulders. This body one day will be resurrected from the dead. Is that crazy? Some don't think, like some of some Christians have never thought about that. You just think of heaven and you just turn into like the spirit and you got these crazy wings and a harp and a cloud and it's the most boring thing you'd ever want. Who would want that? Okay, Randy Alcorn writes a great book about heaven. He's like, people don't want to, they don't want to get saved because they don't want to go to heaven, the heaven that you've created that's just lame. Thanks, Looney Tunes, you know? But when you find out that heaven is going to be heaven on earth, like he's coming back here and we're coming with him, and we're going to be in our glorified bodies. I'm going to have a six pack. You just wait one day. It will happen. Okay. Ice cream won't have as many calories and you can still have it every night and it won't affect you. But the resurrection will be of two types of people and everybody fits into one of these two categories. The first is, Paul says that I have hope in the resurrection of the just, okay? Who's that? The just are the innocent. They are those who have been made holy and sinless by the blood of Jesus and the finished work of the cross. They are those who are righteous, 
What's the root word of righteous? Chus. No, it's right, right? They've been made right before God. And when they stand before the legal judge of heaven and there's the doink, doink of heaven, doink, doink, and you're standing there. And Jesus stands up as your attorney and he says, sit down, I'll handle this. He says, father, he's with me. The wounds on my hand and my side and on my feet, the blood that poured forth from them have atoned for this guy's sins. He's trusted in my redemption. And the gavel is slammed down in heaven and I'm justified by the judge just as if I'd never sinned. I'm declared righteous or right. And there will be the resurrection of the just. First Thessalonians 4 speaks of this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Those who are um, those who are dead right now, the, the Bible calls it for the body. It's just a sleep. It's just going to sleep for this. We say to you by the word of the Lord and we who, uh, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You guys, this is such a wonderful passage, a passage that describes the resurrection of the just, something that we call the rapture. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 breaks it down for us kind of moment by moment of what's going to happen in this moment. Now, we know that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that it's going to be happening in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, okay? So it's going to be in a moment that all of this is going to happen, and it's in the twinkling of an eye. And someone once said that there's the wink, there's the blink, and there's the twink of the eye, right? Then there's the twinkie, which has nothing to do with the eye, except I'm looking at it and I love it. But no, there's the twink that someone said is one one thousandth of a second. Okay. So let's just say the rapture is happening in the twinkling of an eye, the one one thousandth of a second. And if we turn it into slow motion, let's turn it way down into slow motion. Okay. So here we go. What's happening? This is it. You know, just before this happens. Grab your pants, you know, as you're going up. Just before that, just ahead of you in the carpool lane, right? Are all the bodies of the dead saints who've gone before us. Okay. So this is a very special thing. If you have friends and loved ones and grandparents and man, everyone throughout all of history who's had hope in Jesus, they, their bodies are going up before us. Okay. I'm excited because my dad will be in that mix. My dad died when I was um, 19 years old and we cremated him. And uh, the undertaker of Lakeview thought it would be wonderful for us to spend 500 extra dollars and buy the mahogany carved cowboy boots to put his ashes in. Let's do it, mom. It's what he would have wanted. Okay. So we put his ashes in the mahogany. I don't remember if there was a cork on the top or what went in this thing, you know, and then we took him over to rest under Stuckel Mountain in Klamath Falls where we ranched and, and we, we put him in there. 
and then they slid a marble slab in front of it. And I haven't seen that $500 mahogany cowboy boot in 22 years. But one day, one day at the sound of the trumpet, either those things are going to just blow apart or the cork, you know, but those ashes are going to come out of that mahogany boot. And the same God that formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and blew his spirit giving life into his lungs is going to breathe into my dad. And my dad who died paralyzed with his left arm, unable to be used, his left side paralyzed by stroke, his cheek sagging, unable to swallow with hemorrhaging of the brain and an agony. He's going to come out and probably be a little more like he was three-time state champion wrestler in high school, wrestled for Washington state. This guy that was always my hero, this buff cowboy that you're just like, that body was just destroyed by Hodgkin's disease, was destroyed by radiation, was destroyed by bone marrow transplants, was destroyed by chemotherapy, was destroyed by prednisone, was destroyed by shingles, and was destroyed by brain cancer and a stroke. And you know what? That corruption will put on incorruption that day. And he'll be in front of me. <laughs> and, uh, and I'll beat him because I'm fast. No, I'm kidding. No. He'll, he'll get there first, you know, and he, he'll meet, his body will meet the souls in the air, okay? And then we will meet him in the air. And from that point on, there's the comfort that thus we will always be with the Lord. From that point on, we're in paradise, you guys. See, hell is wherever there's no presence of the Lord. Heaven is where he is. And we'll see him face to face. That's the resurrection of the just. It's not to be confused with the second coming. You can listen to our revelation study. In the second coming, Jesus is actually going to come not to the air, but he's going to come down to the earth. He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to vanquish his foes. He's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule from the throne of David, just like he promised. And we get to be there with him. On this earth, you know, and there's a little, you know, what's the earth going to be like in the, we know that the millennial reign, it's a hundred percent this earth and we'll be back. You can say your Arnold Schwarzenegger taglines right there, but there will also be the resurrection of the unjust. Well, if the just are those that are innocent and holy and righteous, then who are the unjust? Those who are guilty, wicked treacherous by implication, specifically heathen. And this will happen at the end of that 1000 year reign of Jesus on the earth. Daniel prophesies of it in Daniel chapter 12, verse two. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Daniel gives us both the just and the unjust. John will also give us both the just and the unjust. Look at John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so we have this hope of resurrection but one is, it's not a hope, it's what's called a certain expectation of judgment. And do you think the world really considers this when they think of 
their afterlife or their eternity? Do you think that they think about their body standing before God, the righteous judge? And in their case, there will be no attorney, no mediator to stand before God and plead his innocence. Instead, they'll be standing there with their long list of sins against them. And they'll be sent to this place that Jesus calls hell. Jesus spoke so much about hell and he was referencing a location in Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnon or Gehenna. And it was really the local refuse pile. It was the place where all the garbage was burned. So it was constantly burning and the worms would eat the trash and the lepers would go there. The leper camps were there outside the city where they would go and they would writhe in their agony. And Jesus would use that as a visual portrayal of where the unjust will be sent for eternity, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is never quenched and there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. And so what do you do with this information? What do you do once you've heard that there's a resurrection, the just and the unjust? Well, Paul says this being so in verse 16, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men because he will stand before the judge he strives to have a clean conscience to have a good conscience before god marshall said it's a conscience that does not condemn him not because it's insensitive he just doesn't care about the bad things he's done but rather because it detects no faults and last week we saw this that paul said i've lived in Uh, with a good conscience until this day. We studied the book of Hebrews and chapter nine tells us that that clean conscience comes from having been washed by the blood of Jesus, having our hearts sprinkled with the blood of the Lord as if it was clean water that cleanses us and makes us right before the Lord. And I wonder today as you're visiting Calvary Chapel, I wonder, have you ever had that cleansing work done? Have you put your faith in Jesus and ask for forgiveness of sins and let him do a cleansing work over your heart, over your mind, over your soul so that you can lay your head on your pillow at night and not swim in bed or wrestle in bed because you've just got this nagging guilt on your conscience. So that when you lay your head on your deathbed, you'll be able to consider it, I'm just moving on to the sweet sleep of death. Or that you would be wrestling in agony before that death day. I had a friend that was a trauma nurse in Corvallis. And she just had just insane stories of people who were dying. um, And they knew that they were going to be facing the wrath of God. Even though they deny God, they were terrified. But that we can have a clean conscience before we go stand before the judge. Knowing that Jesus took care of it. Jesus took care of it in my place. He had a good conscience before the Lord and also before his fellow man. And that's an interesting thing, you know, uh, to know that one day me and my bros and my sisters, we're all going to be up in heaven together, enjoying a forever in length of time together. And you know what? Let's just squash the bitterness right now, huh? Let's just forgive each other right now. Let's let bygones be bygones. Jesus himself said in uh, Roman, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter five, verse 23, If you come to the altar and you bring your gift and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
So if your conscience reminds you that there's something wrong with somebody in the fellowship and worshiping the Lord, you'd go and take a little trip out to the foyer and just say, man, I know I said this, or I know that this, I know that there's misunderstanding. I just want you to know, man, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. This was wrong, or I might not totally understand it. I just love you. Let's just reconcile. Let's just maybe agree to disagree. And, you know, let's, um, let's reconcile and be friends. And uh, because you know what? We're going to be together in heaven for eternity. So let's enjoy each other now too. We're going to go through verse 23 pretty quick so we can have the worship team come on up. Uh, verse 17, now after many years, he just continues his story. I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. So in his defense, what a transition, how huh? we're just talking about the resurrection. <laughs> let's go get back to his defense before a court here. So I think that's where a doink doink comes in. Okay. Like, doink doink. Okay. We're back in front of the judge. Uh, he says, after many years, I came, I was bringing alms and offerings to my nation that you're accusing me of sedition. I'm just, and I was there loving on my people and my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. And so he says, I don't even know where my accusers actually are. And no one saw this happening in the temple. And, and Roman law did not appreciate accusations without the witnesses uh, on that day in court. Verse 20, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoings in me while I stood before their counsel, unless it's for the one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I'm being judged by you this day. So maybe they've got a fault that I brought up the resurrection and that seemed to stir up the hornet's nest in the last chapter. Verse 22 and 23, but when Felix heard these things, Having more accurate knowledge of the way, we'll pick up here again our next time in Acts. He adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. And so uh, Paul's two-year club med vacation on the Mediterranean Sea uh, begins here. Will you guys stand with me? We'll close down our time together. So much uh, narrative of the trial, some not really of any importance to us, but clearly just some important observation that draws application is that there is a hope for us today. There's a hope in this resurrection that we as Christians will one day be resurrected. First Thessalonians, when we read it, it closed out with comfort one another with these words. Lord, I just pray today where there is just grief with just observing the fallen condition of this world and bodies breaking down, loved ones with cancer, just final days of life, final months of life. Just fallible man, just bringing great frustration to us or injustice. And we just have that hope that this isn't all there is. Suffering won't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. 
there's hope. And so Lord, just afresh today, we put our hope in you. And we just are so humbled, Lord. We know that we are righteous. We are innocent. We are just. But not because of our actions. Things that we've done. But rather because of something that was done for us. By a loving God on a cross. Lord, we also have some hope that there's resurrection of the unjust. As we see people just hating you and shaking their fist at you and doing treacherous, wicked actions. And we just long for justice for those things. And there will be a day where justice will be served. As the unjust are also resurrected. And maybe I just want to speak to you today. If you came to church today and you came through these doors and sat down and you walked into this room not innocent, not right, before God you knew and you know that you've sinned against Him, you've rebelled against Him, you've done life your way. Maybe there were times you hated Him and you lived actively against His ways on purpose. Maybe your life was, oh, I don't hate God. I want to be on his side, but I want to live life my way. And that sin, you're going you're gonna to stand condemned because of that. The wonderful thing is that you're here today. God brought you here today to hear this message. And though you came to this place unjust, a certain expectation of judgment to come, You can put your trust in Jesus right now. You can put your hope in Jesus right now. You can ask him for forgiveness of sins and he'll give it. And I just beg you right now and I just plead with you. Just in the quiet place of your heart, confess your sins to the Lord. Confess your sins and and receive forgiveness. I'm going to help you in that right now. If you just want to pray a prayer after me, you can just say, Lord Jesus, today I'm being confronted with my own sinfulness. I know what I've done. You know what I've done. Now I know you know what I've done. My heart has been wicked against you. And I know that I could not stand before you I would be going to hell. And I just ask you today to forgive me. I want to be washed clean. I want to have a clean conscience. I want to lay my head on my pillow and sleep peacefully at night. And I want to lay my head on my deathbed and I want to sleep peacefully then too. Would you give me the clean conscience that comes from forgiveness that I heard about today? And will you help me to live for you? from this day forward. Save me. Thank you for being merciful. Thank you for loving me. I want to be a Christian. And if you prayed that prayer, it's not a magic formula. There's nothing magic in the words. I'm just trying to help you formulate a heart of contrition to the Lord and a heart of loving the Lord back for His great love for you. 
And I just believe if you cried that out to the Lord and prayed that maybe in the quiet of your heart, that you are saved and born again. You're a new creation and you have the hope of heaven and the hope of being just in the resurrection. But it doesn't end here in the repeating a prayer somebody said. Now it moves forward and now he wants you to live for him. He wants you to be part of a local church. He wants you to learn obedience and how to choose Jesus day after day after day. The adventure begins now. So why don't we close down in song, just loving on the Lord and worshiping Him. Beginning this Passion Week with just sober hearts, thinking of how great and wonderful our God is, that He came, lived the life He did, lived out this wonderful week of Passion Week that he did and and made that journey to the cross, to the tomb, and then came out victoriously vindicated at the empty grave. Let's give him glory and honor as we wrap up here with song.